0: I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to welcome everyone listening uh, to us here uh, in Washington, D.C. and in New York City. If you're in New York City, you are catching us on WBAI in, um, in New York, and I appreciate if you'd support the station. If you're catching us in Washington, you are catching us on WPFW. And, uh, and likewise, I hope that you will support these stations. We are listener-supported radio, and we rely almost entirely on your contributions. Um, again, if you're listening to New York, uh, I ask that you go to the pledge line. It's 212-209-2950, or go online to give2wbai.org. If you are catching us in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, then I ask that you go to their pledge line, which is 202 588 9739 or go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate. Again, we are listener supported radio and we rely on your contributions to keep these fine stations on the air. I can't express enough on how much I appreciate getting airtime in two such significant markets um, as New York City and Washington, DC, particularly when you when you consider uh, myself as a as as a Mohawk or a living in uh, Seneca territory, how much New York City impacts state politics, and of course how much uh, Washington D.C. Uh, um, impacts our federal policy and p- federal law. So uh, we spent a great deal of time talking about some of that stuff. But I'm not going to do that this week. Um, I'm sad to uh, to announce that uh, that I lost a, a dear friend uh, just last week and. Um, and his funeral uh, is this week uh, in Akwesasne at the Longhouse. Um, I came to New York at the beginning of uh, May uh, for the first time in three years after the whole COVID debacle and everything, and as we did a book book launch for the Mohawk Warrior Society book, um, mostly a book attributed to uh, Louis Gordunyak-Dajé Hall, um I sat in a in this room at the Judson Church uh, with colleagues of mine that I have worked with over the years and I realized at that moment and I even mentioned it that to have all of us in the room at the same time and I'm talking about my my friend Paul Delarune, the De, uh, De, uh, De uh, uh, gay, my friend Laurent Thompson, uh, uh, Canasaraga, and specifically um, uh, the third of that trio, which is uh, Francis Boots or uh, Arunio Dago. To have those three guys together and then to be a part of doing an event with those three guys was not only a privilege, but again, as I looked at that that room, I realized that there may not be many more of these. And of course, as it turned out, that was the last public appearance where you would have seen not only those three, but four counting myself in, uh, in the room at the same time. And of course there were, there were others there and I don't wanna leave anybody out, but, uh, but we know as far as native people go, um, that, there's, that there has been this trio of men um, that have dedicated not just the, their current status of life, educating but their their entire lives and you know so as all of us age we become keenly aware of our own mortality and the mortality of those who are somewhat older than us and so again I um, I regret to inform anyone but uh, those of you who caught the show and uh, heard me talk about the Warrior Society book that one of the the contributors to that book uh, a, a man that is known as both Francis Boots and Arunia Dago uh, passed away, and you know Francis was probably uh, I don't know eleven years older than I am. Not not terribly old, but but um, lived a full life, and in our ways we we express that we say that he uh, that he lived all his days, and and he certainly did that, and. Arun Hidalgo did, did uh, he he bridged gaps in ways that that some of us fail to do um, and myself included you know some of us become almost ideological in our views in such a way that um, we can we have a tendency not to have those conversations with people we don't agree with and uh, and that wasn't the case with the Arun Jidago I mean he he did reach across he he worked in many ways um, with people that, you know, some of us were made per- perhaps were at odds with. And and in many ways that made him more accessible. Uh, and the thing that I will say about uh, Arun is that he was one of the kindest and gentlest people, period. Not just man or woman, but people. He was the kind of person who would give you his individual attention. He wasn't just a public speaker, and he, and he could be a public speaker, and he was a public speaker. He was uh, a master of, uh, of of our language, and that trio of men that I talk about, um, they utilized the language in ways that many fail to do. They used it to better understand and to communicate with others uh, things about our culture, that were are essentially timeless because when you utilize the etymology of our language to explain what those people who came far before us were thinking, because you could do that if you, if you understand the language. And that's, and that's what these guys offered. And, and that's one of the things that, that Francis was, um, was incredible in conveying. And, you know, I, I, I know, I've known him for, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 60s now but I've, I've known him since my 20s and we you know we have had times where we could j- just get together to speak for hours um, I, I worked in Okwasne for a while and uh, and we had a circle of friends that we both shared and um, and he'd stop by the shop that I that I ran up there and we we would just have conversations that may or may not have been political they may not may or may not have been cultural they they may have been more geared towards—I don't know—geared to towards just what each individual, what what we were going through, and and what our experiences was uh, were. So, um, I had a you know a, a, again a real affinity, a real affection towards uh, towards this man, and uh, and I've got to say, uh, I mentioned it when when I was in New York, and I've talked about it since with others, and before that that. I was growing increasingly concerned that this, this trio of men who who I view as my mentors are all older than me. Some, you know, in the range was anywhere from seven to, you know, you know, 15 years old, <laughs> older than me or so. Uh, and you know, you, you see these guys and you think sometimes that you're going to have them forever because it feels like you have, but the truth is you don't. And so for this program, not only do I want to speak uh, some about um, Francis Boots, uh, Dogo, um, but I want to talk, I guess, more generally about losing elders. And I don't just mean the older people in your family. You know, you know look, we all lose loved ones. And we can place um, a great deal of significance on the loss of a loved one. But there, there are also people that go beyond your family, that that teach, that impact hundreds or perhaps thousands of people uh, with with their words and with their presence, and and you realize how our culture depends on the lives of these people, or and not just the in, depend going forward, but they they have been influenced significantly by their you know by their lives so i'm going to talk a little bit about about that too and go go beyond just the loss of my dear friend um, but first let me, let me talk a little bit we we came to new york in uh, in may for this book launch at the and we did it at the judson church down at washington square park um, it was uh, it was a decent turnout and and it felt great to for me to join some of uh, these friends of mine and to have, you know, people come from all over I mean, from some people made the trip from here in Cattaraugus on the Seneca territory. There were people who came from Mohawk territory and from, uh, I mean, there were literally people from all over. And of course, many of you who, who listened to my program, um, made the trip out to the, uh, uh to the event and had the opportunity to, to really the privilege, I should say, to meet and hear some of the people who have been such a a significant influence to me in my life. So that was, it was a great event. Um, And the event was based on doing the book launch for the Mohawk Warrior Society, a handbook on sovereignty and survival. And, uh, I, I contributed a couple of pages to this, but, but so did Francis. So did, uh, uh, uh he wrote specifically, um, a section here about our use of wampum. Uh, but you know, because that uh, there's, there's so many myths that get created about wampum just being used as money. You know, that's one of the things that, uh, uh you know, that's kind of the, the general or the stereotypical image of what, when, when people hear a native person use the word wampum and it's, and it's that's uh, that's not really true at all. Um, I'm not saying that we didn't place a value on uh, on wampum beads and on on the on the shells that we used for wampum, but we used them almost as you know mnemonic devices, memory devices. We we wove them into into belts or strung them on strings that to represent a message, and so um, that's what uh, Yadago had, uh, spoke of, or in, in his book. Look, if you, if you haven't, uh, ventured out to, to get a copy of the book, and if you're interested in any of the stuff that I talk about on the show on a weekly basis, I recommend that you, you can go to Amazon. You can go to the, you know, to the actual, um, you know, publisher of, of the book. Um, uh, and you can, you, you can order it. And, and I, again, much of the content is, um, uh, is really geared towards the work of Louis Hall uh, somebody that that all of us including uh, Elluña Dago spent such a great deal of time with that um, uh, it's you you can tell that that it isn't just the the words um, wrote uh, written or, or spoken um, it is really, how much he influenced other people. So, uh, again, the book is put out by, um, a PM press. Um, it is, uh, you can look them up online, uh, www.pmpress.org. Um, and of course it's available on Amazon. Um, but I, I recommend, but we offered this as a premium, um, for, for the show. And I'm not sure, uh, you know, how many took people took advantage of that to make a donation to the station um, WBI in particular uh, in uh, and receive a copy of this book but you know if anybody's interested in and they would like to um, reach out to me uh, we I do have some copies um, and you'll get a chance to read not just the words of uh, of myself and you know other really engaged uh, and, and I hate to even use the word activist because at, at some point we are are more than that we're educators we we all tried to play a role at, uh, in terms of mentorship to others. And no, nobody represents that more than uh, Erwin Hidalgo. And uh, so, again, he represents a, um, not just a loss in terms of you know, the, the wisdom and the knowledge and uh, the language skills that he has, but he also represents somebody who gave so much and for so long. You know, so if you don't know Francis Boots, then that's a tremendous loss to you, and and it's a loss that you'll never really be able to quantify. Although there are so many videos and audios and uh, and written material that uh, that have captured some of what uh, what Francis was all about, so. You, You know, in many ways, his words will live on for for many, many years, not just the influences, but but his direct words, because because we have recordings. We actually recorded the book launch. Uh, We haven't done anything with the video yet. We haven't uh, done much in the way of post-production. I may work to isolate specifically some of um, um, the things that. that Francis had offered at that book launch, and offered that not just as a, a you know a long video of the whole book launch, but but specifically some of his words and some of his messages that um, he felt needed to be shared at that venue, at this event, and, and for the purpose of uh, of launching this book. But uh, but again, you can you can you know pick up the book. It's called the the Mohawk Warrior Society: A Handbook on Sovereignty and Survival. Um, there are uh, contributors, um, not just myself and the, the the three men that I mentioned, uh, you know Paul Laurent and Francis, um, um, but Gahan at the Horn. Uh, there there there's contributions by by others in here, but it is primarily based on the work of Louis Hall, the man we knew it as uh, knew as uh, um, And you know he Louis had had played a role in not creating the warrior society, but talking to young people in the same way that guys like, uh, Arunia had done talking to young people to say, look, you don't need permission to represent yourself as the men of the, of a community. In fact, you have, you have an obligation to do some of this stuff. So part of the role that, that, um, Louis Hall and Francis Boots and so many others played, in encouraging and enabling and engaging, um, reinforcing young people—not just young men either—to to understand what the issues are and to understand the role that we can play. One of the things I talk about on the show all the time are, you know, some of the the paths that we need to take to resolve some of the conflicts we have with the states or with the feds or with, you know, Canada or, or wherever. But that these paths are not, uh, they, these what they call these remedies for the conflicts we have is not necessarily going to come from our oppressors. Those They're not going to give us um, a means to, to correct them. So oftentimes we have to create that. We have to create that path, and we have to be innovative, and we have to be courageous in, in terms of... Um, understanding that sometimes there's risk involved in in trying to uh, right a wrong especially when the you know the the animal you're trying to tame is as big as the United States or Canada but that's the work that you know that Louis Hall um, was essentially charged with you know it was a it was a uh, a self-imposed uh, obligation but he but he he talked about that he talked about the fact that we, we sometimes get get mired in this idea of our rights uh, without talking about our responsibilities and you know when when young men were talking about wanting to defend their territories, there was the question is do they, do they have a right to do it? is, you know, is there something within our culture that um, uh, you know that we could use to to have that right granted and and you know so folks like, Euña uh, Dago and Gurunya uh, Dudji Francis and Louis, these guys said no you don't need to create anything. you know it's it's in there already. We, we have this as part of our culture and so whether we were advancing our culture through song and dance or whether we were doing advancing it through through speaking and, and standing up to New York State or Quebec or United States or Canada, that's what we talked about. You know the thing about what I what I'll say uh, that really is the biggest distinction between somebody like Louis Hall and um, and Francis Boots is Francis traveled. Uh, you know, I'm not saying Louis didn't, but most people will always associate Louis Hall with um, uh, with Gunawage, but uh, or Gunyange. but uh, but Francis was very well known. He you know this this younger generation that. That was encouraged and empowered, I would say, by folks, the older folks like Louis Hall, um, took our message to on the road. We, you know, we did the, the, the these uh, traveling caravans, these unity caravans, and you know the um, what we call the White Roots, um, you know, spreading some of the, the, the this messaging, and. So guys like, uh, like Francis were, were well-known throughout Native communities, not just in, in Six Nations, not just on the, in Ontario or Quebec or in, you know, in New York, or not just in, in some of the, the major cities around our, our communities, but in, in those individual Native communities. You know, the, the thing about uh, El Dago is that he wasn't looking to speak at venues with, you know, 10,000 people in a room he wasn't trying to fill an auditorium. He, he was much more intimate than that with his conversation. So it didn't matter if it was one-on-one or if he, or, or if he, you know, was sitting with, you know, at a, you know, at a coffee shop, that's where he was at his best. That was where he was the most comfortable. And, and the thing is that, he wouldn't hesitate to pull up a seat alongside somebody who he had never really engaged much with before. I mean, it's it's easy for us to to find comfort in the people that we were most familiar with. But oftentimes the the thing that, that struck always struck me about um, the guys that I was most influenced by, including including Francis, was the humility, the the sense of humor, and and the way that these guys could elicit a conversation out of you, he, they didn't just talk to to you or at you, and um, you know, and and so as I said, as I as we did this event back in May, I was you know again very aware of the significance of that event, and I was very aware that the likelihood of having many more engagements with with these same people was, was probably not likely. I didn't know that the book launch uh, in New York would be the last time that we would be able to gather like that. I didn't know. I feared that it might be though. And, you know, and so that brings me to talk in a more general sense about community and about the people in our community. You know, one of the things that, you know, that is real obvious to me is that, not just from a native perspective, but we see this in in all um, the social confines and, and the, the diversity of, of uh, social networking that exists in, in the United States, in Canada, um, in, in the Western world. We have lost the sense of community. We don't have that same responsibility that goes beyond perhaps the four walls of our own home. I mean, if we could argue about how responsible some households are, but, uh, but I don't, that's not really where I, where I want to go because I think there, there are plenty of good mothers and fathers and grandparents out there, but still as, uh, as responsible as they are to their immediate family, we seem to have a breakdown when it comes to community. Now, now look, I, I would love to sit here and say that we have these strong, vibrant longhouse communities in, in our territories, but I don't think that's that's true at this point. I think that they, they were. I think that we had a resurgence in many of these communities. And, and again, I'm I'm probably going to anger a few people by, uh, you know, by offering some of this. But in the communities that I've lived in, not just the ones that I've traveled to, because some that I've traveled to are better at this than than others. But in the communities where I live, you can see it's it's a very tight circle, and it is not necessarily. Um, a circle that engages the entire community, and so when we lose that sense of community, we lose the ability to not only talk to each other, but we also lose the ability to gain something that is so important um, to Haudenosaunee culture, which is consensus. We don't. We lose the ability to uh, to talk about an issue and come to an agreement. Now look according to my culture that should be done through the clan system but honestly almost any issue becomes you know becomes a conversation both at the you know you know at the lunch table at the coffee shop and then when when you really decide to get together to address this issue the problem is that that we we aren't doing those larger meetings we we you know uh, there are some communities that use their longhouse only for ceremonies. They they don't use the the processes laid out in what what we call the Guyanado Goa to to address issues within a community. You know, and I'm not and look, this isn't just a condemnation of, uh, of of the longhouse necessarily. It's it's really more of a broader condemnation to our loss of uh, of that sense of community. And so when we when we allow some of that stuff to to degrade over the years, what we really miss the most is the fact that the the oldest people in our community who, who possess the memories that go far, much farther back than than any of. And the rest of us have, you know, and of course, I'm rapidly becoming uh, at the age where, where some will call me an elder, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not there yet as far as I'm concerned. And while I have memories that the, the 20 and 30 year olds you know, can't have, there are people that are still with us that their memories are tied to language. They're tied to experience that we, experiences that we only talk about in you know, residential schools, some of the, the most blatant racist um, environments that those that came before us had to live in. You know, I'm not saying that we aren't all experiencing assimilation um, processes and pressures, uh, indoctrination pressures, you know, not just from a government standpoint, but from, you know, social media and uh, media in general. But what those who came before us experienced was some of, uh, you know, what was harsh. I mean, it was it was some of the most blatant and violent times that uh, that anybody can imagine. You know, and look, some of us still have older relatives that that can go back, you know, almost to the, you know, the, the beginning of the of the 20th century. I mean, it's it's not unreasonable for 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 some of us to have relatives that are in in their hundreds. And so the thing about having um a relative that's in that's 80 or 90 years old, their memories and their um education, if you will, was informed by people older than them. But what happens is with each passing generation, those previous generations become less attainable to us, and they, be, they become um, less engageable. So even though I can't speak to somebody who was around in the 1890s, I can speak to somebody who knew somebody who was around then. But with each passing generation, we lose that. And by not having a stronger sense of community, by not having ways to engage, whether it's in the longhouse or whether it's you know in in any kind of community events, we we lose that. You know, the one thing I, I will say, and and you know, I'm 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 actually recording this show on on a Monday because um, I will be traveling to Akwasashi for for Tuesday. Wednesday and Thursday, which is when uh, the funeral will be for for Francis, but the Tuesday and Wednesday are part of the process. And and as much as this is a um, a, um, a sad event, a sorrowful event, m- because I know how many people have were impacted by uh, uh, Dago. I see this as an opportunity to reconnect with people I haven't seen, especially in, you know, coming out of this whole COVID era. I see this as an opportunity to connect with people um, and socialize with people um, because of the life of Francis Boots uh, at Arundhati Dago. So we, it's it's important, you know, uh, it's an important event, uh, even as as sorrowful and mournful as it is, and. So I, I, you know, as I'm speaking to you, as I'm recording this, um, I am somewhat, you know, anticipating and, um, and and kind of batting down that anticipation um, of engaging with people I haven't seen in a long time. These are the kinds of events that d- that do bring communities together. So you know, and, and you know, we we talk about it all the time in many cultures. They say, the only time I see my family is at uh, weddings and funerals." And, and that's true. That's true across many cultures. And it, and it shouldn't necessarily be that way. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be uh, willing to fully engage when there is a, a wedding, a funeral, or a birth, or, or whatever else. Uh, we need to take the time. We need to take the time to, to be more engaging with multiple generations, our, our elders and our youth. And you know, and I think guys like Louis Hall and Francis, Boos, they they epitomize that. I don't know anybody who was uncomfortable uh, having a conversation with Francis, because he he actually provided a level of comfort in the way he engaged you. And and look, I he had language, so he could you know he could um, uh, teach various concepts within language and and he felt very strongly about the language he, you know he, he he was among those people who think one of the biggest problems that that we have today is the fact that we that we don't have a more um, versed population of language speakers and you know so where where i've seen on occasions, you know, people have used that knowledge of not just language but culture almost as a as a tool to empower themselves. That's that's not you know that wasn't what the what the folks that I associate with do. We don't we never saw in these men, whether it was Louis Hall or uh Arunya Dago, we never saw in these men somebody who used their knowledge as power. You know, quite to the contrary. These guys use their knowledge as another obligation that they had to share that knowledge. And, and again, you know, I, I'm grateful that we have essentially hours of audio and video of many of these speakers that, that, you know, have, that, you know, have passed on, including Francis Boots at Arun Dago And, you know, and I, I haven't even begun to work on the, the video and the audio from the book launch. And, and we, we have much of it captured, almost all of it captured, so we will. But I've also had the pleasure of having uh, Francis join me on my programs, my podcasts. Uh, he's been here in the studio with me. Uh, and, you know, and, and he's ha- and he's taken the opportunity to record, especially with, with guys like Degarun uh, uh, Paul Delarone. Um, and, and Lorraine Thompson, the, these guys have, have worked so well together over the years. And, and, you know, I hate to say it, but there will be a gaping hole in that trio of, uh, of, of men and teachers that, um, that so many of us have relied on. And, but, you know, the thing about having impact on people is that both Lorraine and Paul will, for many years, speak of Francis Boots. They will utilize not just the things that he said, they won't just incorporate it in their message. They will attribute those messages to its source, to to Francis Boots. because that's the way these guys are. They aren't just, look, all of us accumulate a certain amount of wisdom, knowledge, memory uh, over the years. Oftentimes, we, we have a tendency to, um, to incorporate what we're taught by others into our messaging without ever attributing where that, that knowledge came from. I'm, I'm probably as guilty of that as anybody. Um, I, I really try to never claim the work of others, and I try to attribute, attribute the research that others have done on a, on a given subject, um, sometimes for better or worse, uh, so people can know, uh, look to those people as resources, because whether they've written something, you know, like in the book that you know that we launched here, this Mohawk Warrior Society book, or whether they've um, participated in podcasts or YouTube videos or you know or or whatever, I mean, it's 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 probably always easier to find some you know the written word uh, offered up by uh, you know, by knowledgeable people, but. Honestly, our culture is, is not as prone to be one that produces, um, book writers. And, you know, I, I struggle with myself. I know I have been scolded, uh, over and over, over again, not, uh, to get myself, you know, in front of the computer and start to write so I can produce. And, and I've got, you know, two or three s- specific book concepts, uh, you know, formulated and notes taken, but, but it's it's not a part of who we are and you know so whether you know we hear this from guys like Paul Delarone, oh why don't you write a book why don't you write a book and he goes I don't, I don't have the time and unfortunately some of that is true because we don't know how much time we have and so if our gift is the spoken word sometimes it it, it seems inappropriate for us to try to convert personally that convert that spoken word into the, into the written word and not knowing h- how much time we have. I mean, uh, and you know, obviously to, to write a book, to produce a book is a time consuming, uh, endeavor. And for some of us, and, and I, and people could argue whether it, this is an accurate way to, to evaluate this or not. For some of us, we look at that time that we will spend to write a book as time that we're not doing something else, and you know, for those of us who are not just activists and speakers, but for people, and I, and I, I, when I say activists, I, I don't mean just protesters. You know, when I talk about an activist, I've t- I'm talking about people who, who are active in promoting an issue or fighting, uh, you know, something. And for those of us who are that engaged and who are not waiting for a paycheck to do it. We're not hired consultants, we're not necessarily hired teachers, we're not lobbyists, we are not um, you know paid writers. We are people who are passionate about some of these issues and so we use whatever gift we feel we have. And if and if it is a, a the gift that somebody like uh, Arunya Dago had which was to engage people directly whether it was one-on-one or whether it was, you know, in a, you know, perhaps a, a small venue. That's the opportunity that we have. And 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 the thing about Francis, he wasn't a big guy. But when he began to speak, he almost got bigger because his voice was strong. His his message was clear. His command of both English and uh of, uh, of, of, our native language was, was such that it, it, it almost made him blossom as a human being beyond his, his physical stature. And, you know, and I see that in others too, but Francis never had that, um, that big, bold reputation that, that, that others have, you know, and I, perhaps myself included, you know, um, Francis always seemed a bit more diminutive, right? You know, somebody who was was not, he, he wasn't looked at as this source of power, but he absolutely was. He, his, just, his delivery was just different than Loran's or Paul's or mine. His, his delivery was, was like, like I said earlier, it was, it was much more intimate. And, in many ways, was was more effective than those of us who could get big and loud. And and I'm not suggesting that Francis couldn't, because he did. But you never felt scolded like (laughs) like you did perhaps with some of the rest of us. And of course, all of us, no matter how we speak, no matter how loud we speak, no no matter how forceful we speak, we always maintained a sense of humor about the messages that we were delivering because in many ways it's humor that allows these uh, uh, these these speeches these words to to lodge themselves in you you know again i can't tell uh, a story about uh, about francis without thinking about some of the most the, the funniest occasions that i had with him I, I'll tell this one story, and, and not everybody's going to find it as humorous as I did, but you'd be at the table with him, sitting in a diner with a bunch of us. We, were, we had gathered over over the tax fight that we were uh, having with New York State at the time, and it was over tobacco taxes. We, were, we we're, But we took a break, gone to lunch, and as Francis was sitting, not directly beside me, but perhaps one seat away on, to my left, and there was a young guy sitting directly across from him. And 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 Francis asked, he said, um, are you gonna use that spoon? And, and and the young guy didn't have coffee, but but Francis did. And he said, No, he goes, well, well, can I borrow that spoon? Can I use that spoon? And so the young guy hands Francis a spoon. But when he did it, he didn't grab the spoon by the handle, he actually grabbed the spoon by the, you know, by the spoon part and put his thumb right in the middle of the spoon as he handed it up to Francis. And I don't know. Maybe a part of him thought, "Well, if I'm handing it to him this way, then he'll have it." That he, Francis will receive a handle first. And so, as as Francis grabbed the spoon, he, he just he just looked directly into the eyes of this young guy, and he said, "Now, why would you hand it to me that way?" And you know, the the rest of us couldn't help but break up because it it was clear that you know this kid didn't he didn't think twice about placing his thumb on the part of the spoon that would ultimately go into, you know, whether it was going into his coffee or going into his mouth. And, uh, um, and, you know, although it could have, it could have come across as a bit of a scolding, it was, it, it was really just the question and the, the tone and the, and the sense of humor that we knew Francis to have that would, um, make him ask that question. Uh, and obviously the, the circumstance, but, um, You know, and it's one of the, it's, that's just, again, one of the opportunities that, 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 and this was, uh, this might've been 25 years ago, but I still remember that story. I still remember sitting in that diner and, uh, and, and watching Francis engage with the young guy and in a way, you know, scolding him perhaps by, uh, by asking the question, but, uh, but in another way, making a funny event out of it. Look, as I said earlier, we all lose loved ones, you know, our parents, our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, um, elderly people in our community. But from a Native standpoint, every time we lose an older person in our community, especially an older person who's lived the full life of engaging with other people and teaching and, and you know, traveling, uh, you know, for the purpose of, of sharing his wisdom, we know what a significant loss that is. And, and we hear it all the time. Well, we hear it all the time while we're losing our language speakers. You know, and and, and every year we, we have less, you know, fluent speakers. I don't know if that's true anymore. I think, you know, we've had pretty strong language programs in, in many of our territories, you know, our, our Haudenosaunee and territories. But it's one thing to be able to speak the language. It's another to have that knowledge about. The etymology of the words, because you know, look, we, if we treat language just, just as uh, a means for communicating what we're doing today, we can oftentimes use that language as labels rather than descriptions. And you know, in you know, I've I've heard other native pe- people say this, but much of our language, the indigenous languages of um, of Turtle Island, are. Not nearly as noun-based as um, English and, and, the, and the Latin languages are. So that means that rather than having a label to call a chair a chair, our words would describe or explain what, what the function of that was. You know, of course, it meant our words were a little bit longer sometimes. And I've said this before on the program, but, I, but this is one of the better, better examples. Uh, we, um, we when we talk about rain, we don't talk about it as as an object. We don't just talk about it as drops falling from the sky. We talk about how we value it. So the word that we would use for rain is yogonuru, and what that most literally translates to is that we know it's precious. So when so although we'll use that word as essentially to describe a rain event, we aren't labeling the actual rain as a noun with that word. Yoganuru, we know it's precious. And that goes to explaining how those that came before us viewed things and how, how we formed language. We didn't just form language with names and labels. We we created a language based on descriptions, oftentimes descriptions that were metaphors. Look, English does it all the time too. Look, there, there are many words or there are many expressions in language that that you can't take literally because you lose it you lose the, <laughs> the concept, you lose the idea you know one of the examples i use all the time is when you say uh use an expression like grasping an idea i mean we know you can't physically grab onto and touch an idea so when we use that expression even in english what we're really talking about is is that our is our minds taking a hold of an idea or a concept unfortunately in so many languages and in, in english and especially i mean they taught us about trite expressions when i was in school because it was like a warning it was a warning not to use them don't use expressions that no longer especially if they are metaphors that no longer have that same meaning because people don't they don't they don't picture it so if i use that expression grasping an idea if you don't picture either somebody trying to touch something with their hands and understanding an idea or a concept and knowing that that you can't do it that way or if you don't envision your mind actually taking hold of an idea and of course your mind doesn't actually take hold of an idea again more metaphor but if you don't if you can't envision that then the expression has lost meaning. Now I'm not saying you don't know what, if I say I'm not talking about grasping an idea, you may know exactly what I'm talking about, but you don't envision the image that is created by that. So the language suffers. So in as much as we have pretty um, effective language programs in our territories, the key to a language having a life is that the language has to speak to you in a way that goes beyond labels um, and that the descriptions are such that you you create an image in your mind I mean that, that's what language is all about L- language is supposed to be all about creating imagery but if we reduce that language only to labels then the imagery doesn't lose its effectiveness. And again, if your language is alive, the words are timeless. The, the words won't have as much of a tendency to be diminished or have their meanings altered. If, if the words are direct, tied directly to uh, an image or a concept or a description, and you know what that, that etymology is, then that word becomes timeless. You know, we talk about oral traditions. Well, we 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 prided ourselves on oral traditions, not just because we couldn't write. I mean, we did use wampum, as you know, Edward Yadago describes in, uh, in in this Mohawk Warrior Society book. We did use wampums as a means to record um, ideas and concepts, but but it, it wasn't a typeset. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it, w- it wasn't a written language in, the, in that way. But our oral tradition, our oral culture, the reason it was so accurate is because we kept those words alive. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I won't suggest, that we didn't lose an awful lot of our culture and, and our standing while we still had language. You know, and, I, and I've heard people say, well, the biggest problem is once we lost the language, we lost so much. Well, we lost a lot of land while we still had the language. We, um, you know, oftentimes we were, I would say that Native people were ill-prepared for the level of ruthlessness that we would be met with in everything from promises made, trees uh, engaged in, um, just, just how ruthless um, you know, white men could be. And and how much they could influence others to be just as ruthless. I mean, I think about the Buffalo soldiers. People, you know, oftentimes have this misnomer about what a Buffalo soldier was because it seemed like a way that a black man coming out of slavery could gain a certain amount of stature, you know, by donning a uniform and, and fighting for the United States. But the truth of the matter is that, you know, people were used. Black men were used, and they were used to um, subdue native people, ne- never having fully gotten their own freedom. They were employed to ensure that freedom was being stripped from others. That's that's what Buffalo soldiers were. You know, I know, and it sounds all romantic when you know um, when when people other people talk about it. People misunderstood understood um, Bob Marley's song about Buffalo. I mean, he, he says it fighting for America. I mean and i don't think people understand, understand the sarcasm that comes in into you know marley's lyrics but again this is the problem when when language suffers and people no longer can interpret what somebody meant with what they say and and look that can happen in any language but it certainly can happen in in our languages as as we lose the the most you know knowledgeable and the and the elderly amongst our communities who Uh, who may not have been alive at the origins of our language because our languages go back thousands of years, not just hundreds of years. But they had a a greater understanding about the language usage and the etymology, and that's not something that is... um, um, embraced as much. And, and frankly, it's not embraced in, in the teaching of, of any language. I mean, when you think about you know, learning to, to speak, you know, a European language or, you know, a, a, for instance, you know, you, you get inundated with just phrases and phraseology until, until that, you know, allows you to grab onto a little bit more of the language. I mean, the language tapes, for instance, we hear about them all the time. But that repetition of a word you know that we associate it with with a an object or a an action uh isn't the same thing as understanding the etymology of that word or where that word comes from or why those that came before us use those expressions you know of course we know that many languages are related so you look at the latin languages italian you know portuguese latin itself much you know even some of the um, the Anglican or Germanic languages have been so much influenced French, uh, influenced by um, you know by Latin, and it's you know those those languages considered Latin languages. We know, know there's connections there. You oftentimes see shared root words and that kind of stuff. And of course, indigenous languages like from here will never have that same um, you know uh, root as the Latin languages do or a shared root. Although across native territories. And you will find this from, from native people from the East Coast to the West Coast. There, there are certain concepts and there are certain words that have traveled and and that we use them and we and we share them. But I you know, as again, as as I get through what I think for, for me personally is, is a bit more of a rough week because of the loss of Orun Hidalgo, Francis Boots. I I just have to encourage people to not put your uh, your elders on a shelf. And and look, we'll have plenty of time to talk about everything they did in their lives when they're not with us. But if we don't engage them while they, they are with us, and, and that's the one thing I'll say about Francis, he was fully engaged every single day. He lived every one of his days to the fullest, and he used every one of his days to engage people. I um I see the death of uh Edunya dago as a as a loss but I see his life as a gift and I think he's it's still a gift that can be shared even for those who will never have an opportunity to, to meet him and engage him physically and personally so I encourage people to, to look for his writings again he's got a excerpt in in uh, uh, in the Mohawk Warrior Society book. You can find, uh, him on YouTube and, you know, I've, I've seen videos across Facebook and Instagram, all kinds of places. And I'll be sure to, um, um, uh, to go through the process of, um, editing the video from our book launch. So, so the final public appearance of, uh, El Yotago, Francis Boots, well, we will get that out and make that available. So, I want to thank you guys for, for allowing me to, to honor um, my friend. And, and hopefully some of the words that I shared with you today will make you reflect a little bit more on some of the people in your own community, especially the elderly, and seek them out. Catch the stories that you perhaps you've never heard, or maybe it's stories you've heard dozens of times. There's a richness in hearing them from, uh, from, a, from a source. So I want to encourage you to do that. Again, I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I hope that you will uh, um, share the program. I hope that you support WBAI and uh, WPFW for giving me this space. This show will also get put up as a podcast, and you can share it that way and, uh, and catch it at any time. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio.